0: If you want to go back to your seats and grab your Bibles and turn to Mark chapter 10, that's on page 716. And Rach Kreiger is going to read the Bible to us. And tonight, Des Smith, who is one of our student ministers, is preaching on the topic of ambition. Uh, So starting at verse 35, and that's on page 716 of your Bibles. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. What do you want me to do for you? He asked. They replied, let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in your glory. "'You don't know what you are asking,' Jesus said. "'Can you drink the cup I drink "'or be baptised with the baptism I am baptised with?' "'We can,' they answered. "'Jesus said to them, "'You will drink the cup I drink "'and be baptised with the baptism I am baptised with, "'but to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. "'These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared.' For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many.
1: Thanks very much, Rach. Um, I'd like to uh, reiterate that welcome to Church by the Bridge. Uh, if you're here along uh, tonight for the first time, it's, it's particularly lovely to see you. We love having visitors, uh, although of course we love the regulars as well, and of course we'd love visitors... Uh, if you're not already connected within a church, to become regulars. Uh, We'd love to see you along here and uh, continue to journey uh, together as we learn more about Jesus. Um, Last week, we were talking about contentment. This week, we're talking about what on the surface of it seems like the opposite, ambition. But I hope as we spend time together for the next 25, 30 minutes... Uh, wrestling with this passage of Scripture that's just been read to us, and which I hope you've got open in front of you, Mark 10, 35, uh, and to 45, um, that we'll actually come to see that it's not quite as simple as that. It's not quite as simple as that, but I think it's infinitely more challenging than we might have initially thought. Ambition. Who do you think of when you think of ambition? Well, let me mention one name to you that I that springs to my mind, mainly because it's in my notes here In my third point. Muhammad Ali was probably the greatest heavyweight boxer in the world. He competed in 61 professional bouts, and of those 61 bouts, he won 56. He was on the cover of Sports Illustrated 37 times. 37 times. Thirty-six times more than me. (laughs) Oh, no, that's right, 37, sorry. And in 1999, the BBC named him the Sportsman of the Century. He was, by any measure, an awesome athlete. And didn't he know it? His arrogance was legendary, as was his sharp sense of wit. And when they were combined, no one listening to him was left in any doubt as to who he thought he was. Let me just give you a sample of some of his choicest quotes. I'm so fast that last night, I turned off the light switch in my hotel room and got into bed before the room was dark. I done wrestled with an alligator. I done tussled with a whale, handcuffed lightning, thrown a thunder in jail. Only last week, I murdered a rock, injured a stone, hospitalized a brick. I'm so mean. I make medicine sick. (laughs) Or slightly pithier, but probably his most famous and concise statement of his opinion about himself, which I'm sure many of you already know, I am the greatest. I am the greatest. His confidence is just infectious, isn't it? It just makes you want to go and pick a fight, doesn't it? I just imagine him screaming out to his enemies, calling on them all challenges, and me standing there behind him, leaning out behind, going, Yeah. (laughs) He's just this powerful man. And of course, we laugh because his arrogance is just so over the top that it's funny. And yet somehow he gets away with it, doesn't he? Of course, we all know why he gets away with it because he was the greatest. He was the greatest. He was, in every sense, the complete success story in his field. I wonder if we were as successful as him if we'd act any differently. Well, of course, I suppose we probably would. Uh, We're Australians. We don't like tall poppies. And so I imagine there'd be a little bit less of the chat. But if we were as successful at what we did as Muhammad Ali was at what he did, I suspect that in the privacy of our own heads we'd be just as pleased with ourselves. Because success is important to us, isn't it? Even if we don't aspire to be the greatest at something or even to be among the top of our field, we still want to succeed in life, don't we? We still want to get ahead. We still have our own ambitions. Now, of course, those ambitions will look different for different people. Not all of us are going to want to be heavyweight champions of the world in boxing. And very often, what our ambitions are will depend upon how we come to define success. For some people, it will just be the obvious one, money. A successful life will be a wealthy life one filled with property and harbourside views, corner offices and sparkling suits. Now, of course, many of us here would immediately say that's not us. We'd never be so crass as to say that money is what makes life successful. Until, of course, you spend even just a couple of moments looking forward to how you see your life going. And you probably do see your life in a nice-ish house, in a nice-ish suburb, with a fulfilling job, well-dressed, well-fed, overseas holidays. You haven't used the word money, but it's there all through, isn't it? Maybe you're genuinely not like that. Maybe money for you is not such a big deal. But maybe status is what counts as success for you. You don't really care if you end up wealthy or broke by the age of 65 just so long as you really excelled in academics or it's sport or in art or in cooking. As I'm sure you've probably seen on the news, there are two people who desperately want to be the Prime Minister of Australia whose debate has been shunted by one hour because of two other people who desperately want to be master chefs. <laughs> you may not care about that either. Maybe it's experience for you that makes a successful life, a life of travel, of being well-read, of experiences, perhaps it's sociality, being part of an integrated web of relationships, of close friendships, of a tight family. What's success for you? Now, you may not fit into any of those categories, but I can guarantee you, you do have some idea of what success is let me suggest to you a little diagnostic tool for working out what it is. Pretend that you're 80, sitting in an armchair, looking back on your life. What would you regret not having done? If you can identify that, then that is success for you. Now, of course, we're all ambitious to an extent. I think I can go a little bit further, though. I think I can say that perhaps at this church here in Kirribilli, maybe we're more ambitious than most. Not everyone here, of course, by any means. But the very fact that we're sitting here in one of the wealthiest suburbs, in one of the wealthiest cities, in one of the wealthiest countries in the world, means that chances are we've got some drive that we've worked at least moderately hard to get to be where we are. We are generally a church of capable, successful, driven people. Now, at this point, I need to say that's not necessarily a bad thing. Ambition, or the drive to succeed in life, isn't necessarily a bad thing. But I think what we need to hear tonight as a church... I think what this city needs to hear, it's not necessarily a bad thing, but ambition is a powerful thing. I think maybe more powerful than we sometimes give it credit. And that if we are going to lead God-honouring lives, we need to know how to think about it properly. And when I say properly, I mean we need to know how to think about it as Jesus Christ himself thinks about ambition. Ambition. And the key is, I hope, we'll see as we go through this passage, the key to understanding ambition and how to use it is how we define success. So let me pray very briefly before we turn to this passage of Scripture and see what it has to say to us. Please join me in prayer. Father God, we thank you so much for speaking to us. We pray that as we listen... The scriptures that we would hear Jesus speaking to us through them, that we would set aside our preconceived notions of what we think He's about, that includes me, and that we would hear Him on this topic of ambition as He really speaks, and that we would respond by the help of your Spirit. Amen. Well, we've chosen this tonight's passage not by accident. I think it's a, it's a great story. It's a powerful story. And I'd, I'd ask you to look at it. It really falls into three bits, really. And the first bit comes in verses 35 to 37. The story opens in verse 35 with two of Jesus' disciples coming up to him and asking him a question. But before I actually get to the question, a little bit of background might be helpful. This is set in Israel, as many as you will know. And Israel, at the time of writing, was under Roman occupation. Israel was actually, historically, pretty good at being under foreign occupation. It had been under Roman control for about 50 years. Before that, it had been under the control of the Syrians. Before that, the Greeks. Before that, the Persians. Before that, the Babylonians. And before that, the Assyrians. In fact, it had got so good at being under foreign control and under foreign slavery, it had been there for about 800 years. However, something was moving through the land. There was news that a long-ago promised Jewish king was on the march. Um, An unlikely candidate from a hick town, Bethlehem, a man called Jesus, had been walking through Israel for the past few years preaching about a coming kingdom of God and that a figure, a saviour, a Christ, a king, would be coming to liberate his people and to bring in a new kingdom, the kingdom of God. And he had gathered around him a small group of close friends to help him preach and teach this message. They weren't high flyers, they were plucked from obscurity by and large. Nameless tax office workers, fishermen, thieves. And they had been plucked with obscurity to come with him on what was going to turn out to be the biggest show on earth. As we see him here, he has already been preaching for almost three years and is now marching towards Jerusalem for what they think will be his triumphant victory. If you can imagine what it must have felt like to be a hopeful young Democrat when Obama was coming into office and you, plucked from nowhere, were suddenly taken into his inner sanctum, one of his key advisors. Can you imagine the excitement as you march towards Washington, so to speak? Well, that's the scene we're talking about here, and that's the sense of elation that his disciples must have. And it's in that context that his two closest friends, James and John's, James and John, summon up the courage to put a bit of a proposition to him. Look at verse thirty-five. Then James and John, sons of Zebedee, came to him. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us. Whatever we ask. Now just think about that question for one minute. If your boss came into you one day and said, I've got a job for you. I'm not going to tell you what it is, but you have to say yes. Will you do it? Well, of course you wouldn't. Not if you've got any sense about you. And Jesus, who has a good deal of sense about him and who certainly didn't come down in the last shower, also is a bit more hesitant to give any guarantees. Look at verse thirty six. "'Well, what do you want me to do for you?' he asked. And then comes the question directly. And it is staggering in its audacity. Look at verse 37. James and John replied, "'Let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in your glory.'" It's so audacious. These guys are asking for the top jobs in the coming kingdom's administration. They know Jesus' kingdom is coming in glory. He's promised as much in chapter 8. And they want a bit of the action. There's just no other way of putting it. This is bald ambition. These are people who have been oppressed by the Romans all their lives. And now that they see the writing on the wall for their imperial overlords, they want to get the best seats in the house before they're taken by someone else. Now, naturally... When the other disciples hear about this, they're absolutely furious. Look at verse 41. When the ten heard about this, this question, they became indignant with James and John. Oh, James and John, could you be any more cynical in your grab for power? What's more, you've just used your status as Jesus' best friends to try and get on the inside track with him. We're very disappointed with you, James and John you can just imagine them tut-tutting and wagging their fingers. till, of course, you realise the reason they're disappointed is because James and John have done the wrong thing. It's because they've just got in first. Let me read to you chapter 9, verses 33 and 34. The disciples came to Capernaum. When Jesus was in the house, he asked them, what were you arguing about on the road? But they kept quiet, because on the way they had argued about who was the greatest. Yeah, James and John, they're ambitious. But for all their mock indignation, I don't know that the disciples are any better. They've seen a path to glory, to power, to success. And they see Jesus as their way to get it. But then comes Jesus' answer which is really the second part of this little story. And he answers James and John's question directly. You can see it there in verse 40. He's pretty clear. To sit at my right or left is just not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they've been prepared. They've asked for the best seats in the house and he said, well, look, the best seats in the house are just not for me to give. I'm really sorry, I can't offer them to you. But notice how he doesn't say that straight away. Why doesn't verse 40 come straight after verse 37? Well, it's because Jesus knows that there's something deeper in James and John's minds and heart that's behind this question. A deeper misunderstanding about who he is and about what success is that really needs dealing with. It's not just that they're asking the wrong person. No, they don't really know what it means to be at Jesus' right and left hand at all. You can see that there in verse 38. You don't know what you're asking, Jesus said. Can you drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with? Only can they answered. Jesus said to them, you will drink the cup I drink and be baptized with the baptism I'm baptized with but to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. It seems cryptic to us. A cup? A a baptism? What's he talking about? Is he talking about a celebration drink and a christening? Well, we might hear it that way. But if you're a first century listener like these two, you should have known better. To drink the cup in the Old Testament is not a good thing. To drink the cup that Jesus will drink is to drink the cup of God's wrath. To drink the cup of punishment and suffering at God's hands, as detailed throughout the book of Isaiah. And to be baptised here, well that doesn't mean to wear a white smock and have a shell put water over your head. No, no, baptism here is a symbol of death. It's a symbol of being drowned or or overwhelmed in a flood. Jesus is saying, you don't know what you're asking. You think this will be the gravy train. You think this will be the path to Easy Street. But if you come following me, you'll follow me into suffering, possibly even into death. And whether James and John knew that when they said they could or were naive as to whether they thought they could hack it. Jesus' point is clear. James and John, if your idea of success is worldly power and glory, you are following the wrong guy. Because if you follow me, you follow the path of suffering and the path of self-sacrifice. But Jesus... Doesn't leave them there. We see this in the third section of this story. See, he doesn't actually then rebuke him. He doesn't rebuke the brothers as we suspect they might for such a cynical grab at power. He doesn't tell them to stop being ambitious. He doesn't tell them to quell their desire to succeed. Instead, he just tells them to redefine what they mean by success. You can see it there in verses 42 to 44. Jesus called them together and said, You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. Of course, they're to be ambitious. They're have an astonishing drive to succeed. But success for them isn't to look like the success that they see around them. No, success for them, glory, is to serve. To be first in Jesus' economy is to be last. You see, the disciples had taken their view of the world their idea of glory from the world around them. They looked at their rulers and their success and their money and their power, and they thought that's what glory was. And I wonder if we're the same. We're human beings much like them, and the world around us and its message about what success is, is the very air that we breathe. We look at the world with its celebrities and its powerful politicians and its captains of industry And we think, yes, that's what it is to be successful. I see my boss in his corner office. Or I see my academic supervisor with their vast brain and their feet of publications taking up their bookshelves. Or I see that really well integrated member of my social scene and think, if only I had that way with people that they do, then I'd be happy. That would be success. That would be glory. Then I would be on top of the world. It's so easy to be sucked into that, isn't it? But what does Jesus say true glory is? Glory is slavery. Glory is laying down your life for others. Glory is serving God. And you know, he doesn't let you get off the hook by saying, well... You've got to do your time slaving away for others just so you can get to glory, like doing the rubbish jobs at work until you work your way up the ladder. No, you don't do the bad things so you can get to the real stuff. No, service is the real stuff. That's glory itself. And it's glory for this very profound reason. And if you remember nothing else from tonight's sermon, remember this. Why is service real glory? Because Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, lays down His life as a ransom for many. Verse 45. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give His life as a ransom for many. Roll that idea around in your mind Jesus Christ King of the universe was made by him was made for him he is totally in charge he owns you he owns everyone in this room he owns this universe this universe that has rejected him Let's face it, have you and I treated Jesus with the respect that he deserves? Have you and I treated God, the owner of this world, with the honour he deserves? Well, as a race and as individuals, we haven't. We've taken over the reins, we've decided to follow our own ambitions, we've erected our own gods, be they the gods of career or the gods of marriage. The gods of family or of beauty or of popularity. And we've taken him down. In fact, as a race, we hate this God so much that when he actually turns up on earth, we nail him to a cross. And so you would think if he was taking his model of leadership from the Romans, which seems to be the model that the disciples are taking as they look around and see the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them. He would be fully justified to smash this world, as a Roman emperor would smash a Roman province. In 73 BC, a Roman slave, Spartacus, led a revolution of slaves against the Roman Republic. After two years of unsuccessful skirmishes, the Republic finally enlisted its strongest senator, Marcus Licinius Crassus the wealthiest man in Rome, to lead eight legions against them. In 71 BC, Spartacus' army was crushed. All but 6,000 were killed on the battlefield. But rather than be executed immediately or taken away and tried as prisoners of war, the Senate made an example of them. They crucified them. All 6,000 of them. And they took their crucifixes and lined the biggest highway in the Roman Empire, the Appian Way, 200 kilometres of it, with their crosses. Anyone walking the length of that highway from Capua to Rome would see on each side, at every 70 metres, for 200 kilometres, a symbol. Of what happens when you rebel against the authority of Rome. That is how the Gentiles lord it over their subjects. But how does Jesus treat his enemies? He serves them, he gives his life for them as a ransom. Where the Roman rulers lorded it over their subjects, and crucified them, Jesus is himself crucified. Now, Jesus' death was no tragic accident of history. Now he gave his life intentionally. Well, we as a race deserve death for our treason. Just as a man exchanges the ransom money for the hostage, so Jesus exchanged his life for ours, so that we might live. That is greatness. That is glory. And that is the success that the disciples are to crave. To be imitators of God himself in serving others, putting aside their ambitions to take up a far greater one. They must thirst for glory but it is now simply to be true glory. So what are we to make of this as I close? Just two concluding thoughts, reflections. The first is this. I think we're too ambitious. We're too ambitious. And what I mean by that is that we put too much weight on the wrong kind of success Worldly success at the expense of service to others and God. I think most of us in this room probably work too hard at our jobs. Now, of course, for some people, that's just just life. You've got to work hard. Uh, You've got jobs. You've got to do your best at them. But is that why you're working hard at your job? Are you working hard at your job? in order to serve God? Or are you slogging your guts out secretly to make a name for yourself? It's pretty easy for me to throw darts at you lot out there who actually pay taxes. I'm a student. Very easy for me to say that. Well, I need to think about this myself. I'm a student at the moment. And one of the great challenges for me as I've studied, at theological college no less, I'm a Bible college student. You know, we are supposed to have it together. And if there is one way that looks more like serving God than any any other, it's giving up a great job. I used to work in Tassie. I was a lawyer. I wore a suit and everything. (laughs) To then go to Bible college. Well, how possibly could that be done for the wrong motivation? Brothers and sisters, if only you could see inside my head sometimes. I work hard. As a result of working hard, I do okay. Sometimes I even do quite well. And it's really easy for me to turn that into looking even more holy. Not only has he given up his job, look at him. He's striving hard so he can teach others. And of course, in my best moments, that's true. But in my worst moments, it's not true at all. I do it because for success that's my definition, doing well, being the smart guy in the room. And unfortunately there are plenty of others there like me too. I don't know what it is for you, it might not be work, it might not be study, it might not be being the life of a party, it, you know what it is. I should say none of these things are wrong, it's good to work, it's good to study hard, These are good things. God's put us in a good world and he's given it to us to explore and learn about. But the chronic danger is when we start to love that world with its things to know and its money to make and its friends to meet. When we start to love that world more than we love the God who gave it to us. How do you know you're doing it? Simple. Simple. Could you give it up? Could you give up your job if it's becoming an idol for you? Now, trust me, I'm not saying you have to give up your job. I'm not saying you have to stop studying hard. I'm not saying you have to stop being friendly. But if you couldn't do it, if you couldn't give it up, have you just identified an idol? We're too ambitious. But in another way, we're not ambitious enough. Because I think when we see the world with Jesus' eyes, when we see glory as Jesus sees glory, we actually see with a whole new perspective just how small so many of these things are. Worldly success is good, but only so long as we recognise it for what it is. Good, but temporary and fleeting. Sometimes I think our problem isn't so much that we're too ambitious. It's we're not ambitious enough. We sell ourselves too short. You could come to the end of your life and look back in that armchair as an 80-year-old and look back on a life where your character has increasingly looked like the character of the very God of this universe where you can look back and see a life of service to others, of self-sacrifice, of cheerful giving, of slow transformation into the image of Jesus Christ, the image of the very ground of reality. You could aim for that. Or you could have a big house. Do you see what I mean? How easy it is To sell ourselves so horribly short when such glorious, rich, deep enjoyment and joy of life is on offer to us that we might take part in the very life of God in imitating Him? Because so often our ambitions aren't driven by joy, are they? They're driven by fear. The reason my little case study of the woman at 80 looking back on her life is no accident. Because we all know that the person of 80 doesn't have that much longer to go. We feel the weight of death staring at us and we think now in our youth... Well, this is the time to squeeze the marrow out of life. This is the time to make a nine for myself. This is the time to get that corner office, because it won't come again. This is the time to get those harbour views. This is the time to write that PhD. This is the time to be the life of that party. This is the time. It could go on. Now, of course, none of those things are bad in themselves. But if they're done from fear, they'll cheat you out of the very enjoyment they were meant provide you with. That's no way to live. That's no ambition at all. No ambition is to serve God, to serve Christ as he served others. He takes away the fear of death and sets us free to be totally driven for true glory as it really is. That's why they call the gospel the gospel. Good news. As Christians, let's ask God's help now to help us strive for that. Let me pray. God and Father, We're so surrounded by good things. You're so generous to us. And we thank you for them. We thank you for the joys of work and pleasure and study and whatever it else is that we've set our hearts upon. Uh, And we thank you for those things. We thank you for the abundance of this world. And yet we're sorry for when we have clung too tightly to those things. For when we have confused a gift with achievement. For when we have seen success as simply getting ahead in this life and paying no attention to the most successful man on earth, Jesus Christ. We pray, please, help us to orientate ourselves so that we might look more like him, to be truly ambitious, to strive for true glory, service of you and service of others. We ask all these things in Jesus' name, whose spirit makes this possible. Amen.